We argue on Twitter. We argue on podcasts. We're pro-vax or we're vax hesitant. We're just asking questions. Maybe we trust the experts or maybe we do our own research. Some of us are team public safety. Some of us are team don't tread on me. Some of us are team Sweden got it right. Some of us are team why the hell do all these assholes keep talking about Sweden all the time. It's time for bigger conversations, broader conversations. It's time to exit our social media silos, to step into no man's land and share a cigarette or a vape or a bowl of ayahuasca kombucha and lift our eyes to the stars, lift your lips to my ears and to whisper to each other conversations that are relevant, urgent, provocative and sometimes, yes, uncomfortable. Today on the show, a terrific guest who just dropped into my lap straight out of the Twitter universe and into your pod ears. Uh, the audio quality, not great in this episode. I mean, this is, this is, this sounds fantastic, but wait till you get a load of the actual conversation. It's ratchet. Uh, but uh, I say that, uh, I say that just by way of small apology in the sense that this is a conversation that I didn't want to delay. Peter McCormack hit me up. Um, feeling like there was a dearth of voices who were in the independent alternative media verse, but who were also not deranged by crazy. He's one of them. I'm one of them. He has the world's most popular podcast about Bitcoin. It's called What Bitcoin Did. But he's a fascinating guy. I mean, I'm interested in how he earned millions of dollars in crypto and then lost millions of dollars in crypto. And we get into that. But I'm more than that interested in his outlook on the world, the lessons that he's learned from the battle scars that he's earned, and his place, I suppose, in the media landscape, a, a similar sort of no man's land that I perhaps find myself in. I won't preface this too much. We will have another conversation on his podcast, which will get into more of the questions about truth and misinformation and podcasting and the alternative media landscape. This is more really an introduction to Peter, for those of you who don't already know him. If you're new to this podcast and you've just discovered this fantabulous show, I do encourage you to do the boring thing. You know what I'm about to say? Do you know what I'm about to say? Do you know what I'm about to say? Have you taken your phone out of your pocket? Is it in your hand? Are you going to go to the App Store and make sure that you're subscribed and that you've rated the show and that you've commented on the show? Here's the thing. Algorithms are funny things. And the amount that you can charge advertisers is a funny thing. And where you show up on the iTunes store is a funny thing. It's all ineffable. It's all just designed by pixies who are toiling away in some slave dungeon somewhere in Silicon Valley. I don't quite know how it works. I think that's how it works. And what the pixies like is when you don't just listen to one episode, but you actually click subscribe. And what they like even more, in fact, what they get their jollies, their dirty little pixie jollies out of, is you uh, leaving a rating and a review. You could even review it and say, Josh is terrible. I'm only here for Peter McCormack. Why is he still talking? I don't want to hear his stupid Australian accent. Go away. That'd be fine. The Pixies will love it. And more people will find this show because you will have helped it go up the algorithm ranking thing that the Pixies produce. Can you tell I'm not that technically savvy with the algorithm Pixie thing? Maybe it's time to just get to the conversation. I hope you enjoy it with the one and only Peter McCormack. It's 
Well, I'm, I'm interested in you because you've been on the vague periphery of my uh, Twitter universe for a while. Um, and I'm sort of, pa- I'm partially interested in your life story, partially interested in your attitude towards crypto and your insights there, and partially interested to where you sort of see the, the culture, the transatlantic culture in the UK and the US uh, mm. evolving. So why don't we, uh, why don't we start with why you hit, hit me up? How did, how did this uh, unlikely alliance or perhaps likely alliance even come about? Who the hell are you and what are you doing in my house? Well, listen, I was listening to Rogan. I, I was listening to your show on Rogan. And uh, I'm based in the UK. I'm British, but I found myself in this place where I've got this Bitcoin podcast, which is quite popular. Uh, it's one of the one of the most listened to, if not the most listened to one. Uh, but that means I spend a lot of my time with Americans and I spend a lot of time in America. Uh, and it's a very different culture from the UK, even though we speak the same language. And then amongst the Bitcoin community, there is definitely this push to anti-state, um, anarchism, anarcho-capitalism, libertarianism. And whilst I've found myself agreeing theoretically with some of their ideas, I still find myself being somebody who is a, a proponent of democracy and would rather strengthen democracy than, than burn it all down. I, I think the burn it all down idea would, wouldn't make the world a better place. And so when I was listening to your show with Rogan and hearing your pushback, especially with regards to a lot of the stuff relating to COVID, I reached out to you because I was like, okay, this is somebody, I feel like somebody out there actually pushing back on some of these uh, narratives with regards to COVID that it's all a scam and Pfizer just wants to uh, have a a drug out there that we have to have every six months and that it doesn't work and it's killing people and that it's causing, you know, everyone to have heart attacks and children to die. And and look, I'm not a, somebody i'm in la at the moment i've got to wear a mask everywhere which i think is idiotic and my children aren't vaccinated and they won't be and i feel like there's this middle ground where i I sit in which i felt like uh when i saw your show with rogan i felt some affinity to you and i thought okay that's somebody i I want to talk to and yeah and and there's somebody also that i'm a fan of claire lemon uh from colette and Mm. uh i think it's particularly where you called out Tim Paul is a dum dum uh, that stood out to me because uh, I'm, <laughs> well, I'm also most a articulate, of articulate uh, <laughs> criticism uh, I ever been made of a person, but nonetheless true if that yeah. fits. Hey, well, I, I, there's some of the stuff that Tim's done. I, I am a fan of uh, some of his old films. I thought were great, um, and I've watched his show sometimes. I think he makes some interesting points sometimes, but I kind of just got fed up with the whole like Australian is creating concentration camps. I think that's a massive insult to the people who actually lived through concentration camps uh, during the Second World War and or other times in you know, history of the world. Um, and this yeah, kind of I, I, I just did a push. I just did a, a show with uh, with David Frum, which you should listen to, which you'd like, because he says uh, when I talk about this uh, this question of con- are they concentration camps in Australia, uh, David Frum, former George W. Bush uh, speechwriter, says uh, do they have pillows? If they have pillows, they're not a concentration camp, so stop being such a fucking baby. Well, the thing is, I feel like there's this kind of audience capture going on now, which exists within, uh, I don't want to just say the right, but more from people who are suspicious or fed up of the, you know, all the crap that comes from the state or comes from centralized entities that have destroyed our trust, whether that's you know, government entities or mainstream media. 
But at the same time, I, I, I do feel like there's a more sensible conversation that needs to happen regarding this. And I, I think the reason I, I see I clash with a lot of the Bitcoiners because they call me a status cock and they accuse me <laughs> of being paid by Pfizer to, to promote the vaccine and, and things like that. And I think what it is, it's just a cultural difference because I think in, in the UK and especially across Europe following the Second World War, we, we are just a little bit more socialist. We, we don't. You know, we don't have First Amendment protection, which is terrible. I wish we did have something like the First Amendment. But the second time, we don't have guns, which I'm quite happy with. Um, and I think we just organize ourselves in a different way. For example, the NHS, you know, a lot of these Americans uh, criticize it. They say it's socialism and it's the worst healthcare in the world. I, I actually quite like the fact that anybody in the UK, whether whatever social status they have or economic status if they have a heart attack or break their leg they, they're going to get seen to not have their life destroyed mm. by it so yeah i just look I, it was good to see you push back on some of the ideas uh, and i i felt an affinity with you and i just wanted to talk to you really well i mean i think that we in this you know you and i sort of occupy a funny place and audience capture is an interesting way of putting it i should also clarify like this whole like tim pool thing has is sort of like as you may detect just a vast piece of inconsequential sort of mutual trolling i think in the sense that um i don't i didn't really know anything about him until he just started parachuting into my mentions all the time talking about australian concentration camps um so you're probably quite right that he's done great work in the past there are tons of people at the moment who've done great work in the past whose sheen has come off them as a result of audience capture and i think the cognitive bias of always wanting to be skeptical of official narratives uh and you know as you mentioned perhaps institutions have not covered themselves in glory in the past two years it has been chaotic we have been unprepared human beings are clumsy and self-interested so things don't go perfectly um and so there's there are a number of people who in this universe that you and i sort of find ourselves in which is i guess an independent thinking kind of intellectual dark web adjacent sort of not quite mainstream media but also sort of uh, you know not down the the alex jones rabbit hole either we're in this precarious position where we're trying to be um critical and skeptical without also being credulous towards the crazy and i think what's shocked me in the past couple of years is the credulity towards crazy that has happened among some some of these people where the more you you talk to the same people over and over again the more conspiratorial your worldview becomes and you actually find yourself in a place that is frankly quite infantile and unskeptical and credulous in how much you're willing to believe about how corrupt the whole system is and so at yeah. some point you know it, it I, I don't think the i don't think that everyone who criticizes voices like this is right because a lot of those people are just parroting the same institutional lines and will change their opinion as soon as the uh, the cdc changes its opinion and that's not that's no way to lead a rational life either but it's equally fallacious to to do the opposite to do the exact mirror image of that and just disbelieve everything that elites are telling you because there has to be some vast conspiracy that's uh, that, that's behind the scenes um so that's uh, that's just my like tim pool caveat like I, I don't actually know anything about the guy i don't know anything about his background um he behaves in a way that is like trolly and ridiculous and clearly uninterested in um in getting to the truth of the matter clearly uninterested in understanding the experience of people who actually are are going through the things that he is uh criticizing and completely uninterested in actually finding allies and being strategic about what is going to solve 
problems instead of exacerbate problems. This is part of my problem here yeah. that like the extreme everyone's extremism is just ratcheting up the other side, and uh, so people in the middle who are probably the best placed to have credibility in the eyes of the people we're trying to sway uh, find their lives made much harder by extremists who who tarnish our reputation by being fucking idiots uh, and, you know, on our on our side of the aisle. Um, but well, let's that, talk... Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I'll, I just I'll, want to I'll wrap up that thought and then I want to get into your biography. Yeah, no, but that's why I wanted to... Really keen to hear you and him sit down and, and talk Me to too. each other because Me I too. think... I think you have uh, that Aussie tone, which allows you to bring humor in to kind of disarm people and actually have an intelligent conversation with them and, and, and correct them on that. And I, I just wanted to throw in that that audience capture is a, it's a real problem. And, and it really is, for me, is where potentially people want to burn down the mainstream media because they don't trust them. Uh, despite their fact-checking departments, they they don't trust any of them, and then they want to replace it with these new independent heroes, but who are at risk of the same issue with the incentive model, where the commercials drive the audience capture, and, and that really worries me because it creates this echo chamber. And I I don't know if you've experienced it, but you know, I've had to find myself fight back against it. I you know I often talk to my producer Danny, he's actually here with me now in the, in the room. Hey Danny, we, every, <laughs> hey Danny, yeah we uh, we talk about it nearly every day because. The reward mechanism is to follow the crowd, and uh, and I've taken a lot of anger and accusations just because I don't follow the crowd because I, mm. I I don't follow that that narrative, but I have felt myself one get sucked in, but also recognize the economic benefits if you do. But so it's something I've really had to fight against just just to try and protect myself because I think long term it's a short term play really long term you have to just try and be as honest as you can be about what you're thinking um but yeah so i just i i, I do worry about audience capture yeah and it's i mean you you actually in a, in a strange way have more experience of this than i do because as a i mean i'm a, a sort of a i don't want to say a polymath that sounds like i'm big noting myself but like a a, a a man of many skills rather than an expert in anything in particular and so the i've traditionally found myself in a fairly comfortable uh, position ideologically in the sense that I'm willing to give a hearing to anyone from any walk of life. If they are persistently mouthing bullshit, then I'm going to call them on it in, as you say, my unbearably charming Australian way, which is disarming and, uh, and, and pleasant and makes it makes them not realize that I'm sliding the knife in, uh, I say with tongue fully in cheek. And, but there hasn't been a big, consistent, coherent, um, sort of, I, ideological movement that I have found myself both in and also in opposition to perhaps until now with the coronavirus misinformation, but the world that you swim in, I do think has a huge narrative going on inside it, the crypto world, which is either going to be proven right in some ways completely wrong i mean in terms of the most revolutionary sort of idea like um almost utopian vision of the way that crypto is going to revolutionize everything um or is you know like you know there's people from the outside of it even people who are very very knowledgeable but who haven't quite drunk the kool-aid regarded as being um almost an ideology like you might think of marxism or or techno utopianism as being an ideology and i get the impression that whilst you're a thousand percent on bitcoin train you're not a thousand percent on all of the political and cultural consequences that people predict might might happen therefrom is is that right 
Yeah, I mean, look, it's a it's a really complicated area this crypto, and I spend most of my time trying to explain to people why I'm only focused on Bitcoin. That's the only thing I work on. I don't really work on any other cryptocurrency. I don't I don't really pay attention too much to them. I'm not really that interested in. That's most of the the time I, I spend explaining things to people. But also, as somebody with one of the leading podcasts. Um, I am probably the only one who is outside of the Americas. There are a few smaller ones, but most of them based in America. Most of them would probably veer more to like libertarian, uh, con- uh, Republican kind of political standpoint. Whereas I, I consider myself more as, I don't want to say a centrist because I'm not always in the middle. Some issues I'm left, some I'm right. It just depends on, on the issue. Um, but I'm not one of these people who th- who looks at Bitcoin as a as a technology and a monetary revolution which is going to burn down the state. I actually see it as something that will just make the state a bit more financially responsible. So I kind of come from from that position. It is quite a challenging position to come in because I'm not somebody who believes that everything should and will be decentralized. I think some things should be centralized. I also, as I said to you at the very start of the show, I, I am a firm believer in democracy for all its failings. You know, for, for all his absolute failings, and, I, and I've had been fortunate enough to spend time with Michael Malice. I, I recorded a show with him, and I, mm-hmm. you know, really like talking to him, and I, I really appreciate his viewpoint. I, I just, I'm not somebody who sees how you know anarchism can actually uh, make the world a better place. I think we've, you know, we've been through these kind of various revolutions and changes in society. And we've got to the point where we're at with democracy, and I, I don't think the improvement is to burn it down and, and start again, all hold guns and hold our own money and and have private uh, companies and contracts and insurances. To replace can you just, everything. Peter, can you just round out that worldview that you're talking about? Because many of the, many of the people who are listening to this who are only vaguely aware of the contours of uh, of crypto land <clears throat> will hear you say that you're in favour of democracy and think, well, yeah, duh. I mean, apart from a few fringe university professors in Ivy League towers who are teaching political the political philosophy of anarchism, uh, aren't we all in favour of democracy? Everyone from QAnon to the capital to the capital rioters on January sixth to everybody claims to, to Putin claims to be in favor of democracy but you're actually talking about a phenomenon that's quite real in techno land which is um, yeah uh, an opposition to the democratic state as we know it now How, what does that look like yeah I, th- I, I mean I wouldn't be always be the best person to explain this there's plenty of other people and maybe you know I could recommend to, some to talk to but just kind of in summary uh, it is people who just do not believe in government that nobody should have power over you and create uh, uh, rules that you should abide by uh, and that society would operate better if we had no state and uh, everybody operated independently uh, with private property rights and uh, within that structure rather than have the, the state creating rules you would have basic kind of I can't remember what they call it as like common law or or I can't remember the name of it, but it's this idea that there would be no state and mm. uh, everybody would be able to protect themselves. You'd be able to arm yourselves and that you would have uh, various things such as insurances in place to uh, protect society. You would have uh, private, uh, say, private uh security forces that you would pay to to protect you and things like that and like i said i'm not a great person at explaining it because i've not spent too much time reading it because every time i I go down that rabbit hole uh, i find myself saying in theory i agree with you this sounds great but i kind of very quickly dismiss it as uh, something that won't work because wherever you find a country where there's been a breakdown in the rule of law and a breakdown in government or breakdown in the systems you usually see the same things happening you see an increase in violence you see an increasing um, 
uh, like danger towards women and children, uh, the money breaking down. So I, I, I'm not a burn it all down person, but there are people out there that do believe in this. Um, I've read some of the work from Mises and Rothbard that I've been directed towards. But again, I think I think if you're critical of a system, it's very easy to write a paper that would define a, a, a better system that would work better. But the, the reality of you know how does that play out? And I, I just I just don't see any scenario where a society without some uh, uh, centralized government, which is democratically elected, that has a centralized uh, police, security, and rule of law, can work. Uh, so I don't usually spend much time on it. So I've probably done a bad job explaining it. But within the Bitcoin world, there's definitely a large group of people who believe in this. Mm. No, I mean it's a pretty good, a pretty good shape to the to the worldview. And I would also just say, not only are there a lot of people who believe that this world is desirable, but there are a lot of people who believe that this world is inevitable in the sense that the impact that decentralized finance and cryptocurrencies are going to have on uh, central government's ability to control us using uh, the, the purse strings is going to inevitably lead to the collapse of the state. I mean, I saw you had Balaji Srinivasan and yep. Glenn Greenwald on the show, and uh, I'm, Balaji's coming on this show at some at some point in the not-too-distant future. But I think, you know, I've, I've heard him say that the United States of America will cease to exist by the middle of the century, regardless of whether we want it to or, or not. Um, so let's talk about then where you fit into this big, mosaic what is bitcoin good for that's a really great question uh, a number of things we can talk about the kind of basic use cases and then we can talk about the wider use cases um so one of the things a lot of people talk about is bitcoin as a hedge against inflation uh which is a funny thing to talk about because it only tends to be a hedge against inflation over a, a long period of time i saw a really great tweet the other day somebody saying i bought uh, Bitcoin at uh, $50,000 to hedge 7% inflation and I'm down 42%. Uh, it's, it's, it's a really great tweet because Bitcoin itself is super volatile. Uh, but Bitcoin tends to work in a way where the, the time preferences change. So it will hedge inflation usually over uh, a longer period. So every Bitcoin that's been uh, purchased will always has always been historically in profit over a, a minimum of a four-year period. Uh, so we say always, but how many four-year periods have there been since Bitcoin was created? Well, so we're up to 13, 13 years now that Bitcoin's been in existence. Um, but the, we're the talking about four-year cycles. We're talk, we've, got, we've got an N of three to, to look at. Yeah, and, and which is a tricky thing. But I, th I think what it is at the moment, we're just in this speculation phase. We're trying to reprice the world with a new financial asset the world's never seen before, a decentralized financial asset, which is trying to find out you know, how it fits in society, how it's governed, you know, how it's used. And you know, 13 years, is we're very early in that phase. But if Bitcoin does deliver on its goal of being the, you know, the standard financial asset for the world, uh, at that point, because it's still, like I say, very early, the, the liquidity will be at a point whereby it is used so universally that you won't see these massive fluctuations in price, and then you will be protected from inflation. But uh, talking about Bitcoin as a hedge against inflation in, in a country like the UK or the US or, or, or even Australia, where we're talking about low single digit, well, low to mid single digit inflation, four to seven percent, is quite difficult. But the use case really is proven when you start looking at uh, countries where they've got failing currencies. So if you look at Lebanon, Turkey, Argentina, or Venezuela, which I've been to, um, uh, countries that have experienced high double digit inflation, currency collapses, 
almost anybody within those countries who have bought Bitcoin have been able to protect their wealth and their financial assets. When I was in Venezuela making a film, I met a guy there and what he does, he holds all his money in Bitcoin. And then every week he just transfers the amount of these in Bolivars to survive. And he said, even when the price crashes in Bitcoin, he's always tends to be up because the inflation is so high in that country. So the the inflation story itself is is kind of tricky. It is proven itself in the, the most disastrous economies uh, and then in the more kind of well-established uh, stable stable economies it, it, and it, just to, just to ask, i mean just to ask a, to follow a follow-up on that peter when you know in a scenario in which the currency in which a, a national currency is perform is just not doing the job of a currency like venezuela where it's complete calamity isn't anything gonna provide a refuse uh, refuge from that rather i mean they could have been changing the exchanging their bolivars into mexican pesos and that would be much much better and we could uphold the mexican pesos as the future of uh, of currency uh, it doesn't really prove anything i mean if there's if i'm in a in the middle of a catastrophe then even a shoddy product is going to do a better job at, at saving me than than the catastrophe itself but that doesn't mean that that product is the answer to all of our prayers no, you're right. I mean, when I was in Venezuela, they were using five currencies. They had the Bolivar, they had Bitcoin, they had the US dollar, they had the Colombian peso, and then they had this like, like weird, I can't even remember the name of this weird Venezuelan cryptocurrency. But there are some added advantages with Bitcoin, say, over the US dollar. <laughs> getting dollars into the country really means getting physical dollars into the into the country uh, because they don't really have the network and the infrastructure for a digital dollar unless they're using something like tether but the great thing about bitcoin is there's been a mass exodus of people leaving venezuela going across the border around the world because they can't find work in the country and the inflation is so high that they've going out to work and what they can do is they can actually transfer bitcoin back into the country so that's something that happens quite regularly uh, a, a huge amount of bitcoin gets transferred back into the country and just to clarify for people what tether is that's a us dollar denominated uh, cryptocurrency that doesn't fluctuate that is supposedly always going to be pegged to the us dollar is that right yeah, they call them stable coins. They're essentially yeah, stable US coin. dollar pegged. Um, so but the- yeah, so people can actually transfer the Bitcoin back into the country. And the, the, the one interesting, one, not the one, but one of the interesting things about Bitcoin is when I send you Bitcoin, it is actually final settlement. So if I was to send you money over PayPal, that isn't final settlement because PayPal essentially gives you an IOU. Same with bank transfers. But if you're holding a Bitcoin wallet and I send it to you, it is actually final settlement. So what's happening is if you are transferring Bitcoin into the country, the people receiving it are physically receiving the Bitcoin into their wallet. Mm. Right. So so I think even, even crypto skeptics would concede uh, that in cases of dictatorships that are blocking currency flows in and out of the country, uh, authoritarian regimes that are trying to crack down on people's ability to acquire wealth, uh, economic basket cases where the currency is becoming worthless day on day. There's definitely a use case for cryptocurrencies. I've heard crypto skeptics say, uh, yes, but that's very quickly going to be gobbled up by traditional financial institutions, who, which will find ways of, uh, of depositing, of using blockchain to deposit value using their own uh uh, their own algorithms and their, perhaps their own cryptocurrencies, perhaps state-backed cryptocurrencies. Like, there's no reason to believe that Bitcoin is forever going to be the asset that is required for this. Bitcoin might just devalue over the course of the next half century as con- as traditional banks and, and governments get in on the game and provide the same kind of functionality that you're talking about in failed regimes. Yeah, so I would challenge that uh, 
uh, on two fronts. The first one is that you don't tend to find people who've gone down the Bitcoin rabbit hole come out of it. Once people have gone down and they understand the nature of money, the history of money, how money works, and how Bitcoin is different, you tend to have them for life. There's very few people I've met. I, can't, I just can't think of an instance somebody who said, yeah, I, I tried Bitcoin. It just wasn't for me. I, I, you know, I've given up on it. Um, so once people go down that rabbit hole, they tend to stay. So it, it is a growing movement. The, the second thing is these other uh, cryptocurrencies or government uh, currencies, they don't offer the same thing, which is really the point of Bitcoin. And they can't do the same thing. They they fundamentally won't be decentralized. And that's a super important point. And we can come back to why decentralization matters. But they won't be decentralized. They probably won't be censorship resistant. And they probably won't be resistant to uh, uh, an increase in the money supply. So a government CBDC really is just a replacement of the, the local currency. Um, if we had a British pound CBDC. What's a CBDC? A central bank digital currency. It's essentially a blockchain-based version of the, the sovereign currency. So, and do any of these exist yet? I know that a lot of countries are, are talking about launching one. I, I think China is a late-stage testing one, and I know other countries are looking at them, but it, they're not going to have the same properties of Bitcoin. They're not going to fix it. They're not going to create a fixed limit to it because we know governments need to be able to uh, manipulate the money supply to solve their problems of overspending, especially, you know, as we've seen during the COVID times. I mean, the UK government has printed ridiculous amounts of money. I think the US government has printed something like 25% of all the dollars that ever ever existed in the last year or so, some ridiculous number like that. My, my stat will be wrong. But so Bitcoin is fixed to 21 million, will only ever be 21 million. So they can't compete on that level. They also, we, we know the state likes to, uh, like surveillance, they like to track everything we spend, who we send money to and from. And a CBDC is the perfect tool for surveilling all your spend. That's again, a bit more difficult with Bitcoin. So unless they're going to create something better than Bitcoin, there's no reason to move to that currency. Uh, if Turkey was to implement the CBDC uh, under their current dictator Erdogan, I still don't believe the public will believe and trust that money over Bitcoin, especially if they're already a Bitcoiner. Mm. So I just don't see any competition from that. And then competition from other cryptocurrencies. Yeah, I've been in this for a long time, Josh, and I've seen so many different cryptocurrencies bring brought out and say they're better than Bitcoin because they're faster or cheaper to use, et cetera, et cetera. Most of them fail on multiple fronts, but the most important one is they fail on is decentralization. Now, this is super important. Bitcoin is designed in a way that anybody can run a node. And so what that means is you can hold a full copy of the blockchain and verify every payment that comes in. And there are tens of thousands of people who do this around the world. You don't need to do it, but you can do. And what that means is that it's fully decentralized, that the consensus is being checked all around the world, that all the payments are, are assured to be correct. And this is super important because if the state wanted to attack Bitcoin and they wanted to switch it off, even if they tried like a whole country like China banned it, they can't still stop Bitcoin. And even if you're in China, you can still receive Bitcoin, even though it's banned. Whereas if you look something like Ethereum, it's much harder for someone to be able to run a node. There's not as many people running the nodes. And it would be fairly trivial for uh, the state or a, a group of countries to come together and force that to be closed down because essentially the nodes are run out of data centers. So Bitcoin really, for me, and this is why I focus my entire life on Bitcoin, and there are other people who are crypto uh, proponents. And I think really the main reason is that their careers are based on it or they've bought some cryptocurrencies and they want it to go up. But I think anyone who really truly understands what cryptocurrencies are, what Bitcoin is, 
what decentralization is and what the properties of Bitcoin are, they they very quickly dismiss all other cryptocurrencies and CBDCs and, and, and sovereign currencies. It's funny, Peter, that you say that there's uh, you've never seen anyone go down the rabbit hole and then come back out and uh, and, and say no to <clears throat> to Bitcoin. That's an interesting way of framing it. Uh, there's something logically fishy about that, which I'll come back to you on. I can't quite put my finger on it, but I think I think you're sort of defining away the problem by setting up parameters that are self uh, conf- confirming. Like in other words, it depends wh- how you define going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. So I was in. Um, I was in Italy just before Christmas with a friend of mine who's the former European economics correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, and I was amazed at how little he seemed to know about crypto, uh, in which I'm not an expert, but I've dabbled, I own some, I own a, a bunch of, of coins. And, uh, you know, he was just saying, oh, you know, Dogecoins and everything, this is all just nonsense, it's all just a, a bubble. And I was pushing him on the difference between Bitcoin and Ether, and you know the the potential utility of of something like Ethereum and you know smart contracts, and he knew nothing. But he went away, and to his credit, as a good financial journalist, did a ton of reading and a ton of research, and spent an entire day while we were in Sicily uh, reading up on it, and came away and concluded that he was going to put just one thousand euros, uh, which is not a lot for him, into a uh, an an ETF, a, a sort of a, a crypto basket, but that that was probably the amount of exposure that he felt comfortable with. And so that clearly doesn't satisfy your definition of someone going down the rabbit hole in Bitcoin, but it does satisfy a prudent financial, you know, highly financially literate, highly economically literate person's vision of what level of, of risk he's willing to take in, in crypto. So if you define it as, you know, if you define it as spending weeks and weeks and weeks reading every blog about things, then maybe people don't come away without being Bitcoin devotees. But maybe the type of person who is going to read weeks and weeks and weeks of Bitcoin blogs is the type of person who was inevitably going to ultimately drink the Kool-Aid because if they weren't and if they had a level of conservative conventional economic understanding that my friend from Oxford Cambridge does, uh, you know, after day one, they go, all right, I think I get this thing. It doesn't really do anything yet, but it definitely might. And if it does, it's going to change the world, but it's brand new. So nobody can be sure. And that's the sort of precautionary position. Is he wrong? Um, well, everyone's position is their own position, right? And it's dependent on how much time they spent on understanding it, what their background is, what they've been exposed to, various levels of understanding. But I, I don't think one day is long enough. And I, and I also don't buy the whole by the uh, drinking the Kool Aid thing because that implies that someone is being sold a myth. And for me, it's really come down to understanding the nature of money, how money works, the history of fiat currencies. Uh, what control government have over them and their ability to manipulate the currencies and, and, and print as much as they need. And and for me, it's it's a harder thing when you look at something like the UK and the US, because we, we do have fairly stable currencies that have lost their value over time. And we are seeing inflation, which itself is a hidden tax. But I think it's much more evident when you start traveling and you visit countries which have suffered much higher inflation due to economic mismanagement. And so for me, I think it's it's all dependent on the individual, Josh. 
Right. It depends how but much is... time they spent. It. But, but but what, like I say, for those who've gone deep enough down the rabbit hole to like really understand the nature and the history of money, and I think it's a bit more than a day. They, you know, they've they've decided like right, I'm going to spend. I'm going to read some books on this. I'm going to read maybe the bullish case for Bitcoin and the Bitcoin Standard. I'm going to read articles on the history of money. I'm going to listen to some podcasts, maybe like mine. And then over time, they spend a bit more time understanding money and then just seeing it playing out in the real world. What's been happening across the world over this last two years has really pointed to everything the people who have been proponents of Bitcoin for the last 13 years have, have been saying. But not, look, not everyone's going to get it. But over time, more and more people are getting it, which is why Bitcoin does continue to grow and continues to grow in value and, and, and use cases. And there are, there wanna... are you know I should talk about another couple of just example yes. use cases, actually, because you did you did ask about that. I only yes, thought about yes, the inflation yes. one. Yeah, yeah. But there are really there are a lot of other really interesting use cases. Um, but one that really stood out to me uh, over the last couple of years was in supporting activists. So one example we can talk about is the NSARS movement in Nigeria, where there was uh, protests and uh, demonstrations to kind of remove this or campaign against this violent police force which were attacking people in the, within Nigeria a movement was created that allowed people to send bitcoin into the country to support them during their protests and the great thing about bitcoin is that it does now have liquidity in every country in the world you can send bitcoin from one country to the other country and be able to sell it on the open market so as these protests were happening and people were demonstrating around the world bitcoiners were able to send money into the country to help people uh, with their protests then following that we had uh, the Lukashenko protests in Belarus, a, a, a dictator supported by Putin who has no care for democracy. Uh, one of the strategies to try and protest against him, which ultimately didn't work but was a fair attempt, was that state workers were going to strike. And if the state workers to strike, they would hopefully be able to bring the function of the state down. Again, what happened was Bitcoiners were able to send Bitcoin into the country or you know, any anyone who wanted to support the protest was able to send Bitcoin into the country to these people. They were able to get liquidity in the country so they could get the local currency to be able to pay their bills um, and uh, feed their families. And, and that's not really the idea here isn't I'm not talking about just talking about activists and protests. What I'm talking about here is. Uh, the permissionless nature of Bitcoin that you can send it to any person anywhere in the world and they receive it. Uh, trying to send money via banks and PayPal is fraught with issues and problems because it can be blocked or it can take time. You know, if I send you money over the Lightning Network on uh, with Bitcoin, if I send you over the Lightning Network, you receive that almost instantly at almost zero cost. And you have, you physically then hold that Bitcoin because uh, you have instant final settlement. Mm. No, so I mean, I get that- I think I think everybody gets that, but I just want to park. I, th- I think there are more interesting differences of opinion uh, between uh, someone like yourself and someone like my uh, economist friend than the question of whether or not uh, you know blockchains are going to facilitate greater ease and simplicity of money transfer. Like I, I think everybody would grant that, and then would arrive once again at the. Uh, at, at the criticism that I raised earlier, which is yes, but but big financial institutions and governments are going to get very very good at the technology as well. So then you can always fall back and say, yeah, but they're going to only get good at the technology in the context of a fiat currency environment, which they're able to devalue. And then my friend, the economist, will come back and say, well, yeah, but the, who cares about a, deval- a gradually devaluing inflationary uh, fiat currency that is universally accepted everywhere in the world and is super super. 
convenient in every other way if the pro- only problem you're trying to solve is being able to have instant transfers, like instant transfers, instant schmansfers. Uh, you know, by 2030, I'm sure that we'll all be having instant transferring up the wazoo, but uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that Bitcoin's going to be the one uh, gold standard by that people are going to want to be exchanging. Yeah, I think we should go therefore go back to the most important feature of Bitcoin, which is the fixed limit of 20, 21 million. Uh, a lot of economy uh, economists have written off Bitcoin. Uh, Keynesian economics, people like Paul Krugman have written it off. Um, uh, MMT proponents who think that the government can print enough as much money as they want as long as they control inflation. Uh, people like Stephanie Kelton who've been proved uh, completely wrong over this last year across the world in, in nearly every major economy as well as developing economies. Uh, this cheap access to printing money has created a world of cheap credit and the world of cheap credit has created a, 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 a quite a widening wealth divide which we saw again during the covid era one of the big things that uh, bitcoiners care about is this fixed limit of 21 million because there is this fixed limit rather than facing inflation and looking at your savings dwindling and think well crap i need to get out there and spend this money before it loses value and rewarding those people who have assets by having a fixed limit you have to reconsider your purchasing now, if i hold bitcoin now if i spend it now it may be worth 5 10x in in future years so i become a little bit more responsible about how i spend my money and that's that's this is where it gets to the kind of the crux of why, why I care about Bitcoin is I don't want Bitcoin just to replace the state and destroy fiat currencies. I want it to give it as an option for people to opt out of fiat currencies and also create some more kind of uh, checks and balances on how the government spends money. Josh, you and I uh, pro- you know, have bills to pay every month. We have to uh, feed ourselves and, 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 and pay for the things we need in life, whether that's heating or our home. And if we uh, if we go over budget, maybe we can get a bank loan. If we don't pay our bank loan, we'll have our house repossessed. There is no impact on the government on overspending, apart from perhaps uh, every four years they fa- face a vote and they could be uh, elected out of office. We saw again during the coronavirus uh, pandemic, as we faced lockdowns, many small businesses had the option of maybe taking out loans or having their businesses closed. Lots of businesses now near where I live closed, and I went to New York recently, and there's a lot of closed businesses there, but. Mm. Nobody in government lost their job. Everybody continued to get paid and governments continue to get bigger. And so there's no checks and balances on government spending, really. Governments used to uh, operate with a surplus and a deficit. Uh, I, I can't, I, I, it's almost like the idea of a surplus has gone out the window now that every <laughs> government can spend everything they want and everything they need continually um, t- to support their need to look after what they say is look after the uh, society and ensure they're re-elected every every four years and and this is why i really like bitcoin i think it's a it's a check and balance on government but we, we're very early for that I, for me it works i i operate a bitcoin standard i keep my uh, money both in my business and personal life i keep as much of it as away from the government as possible and and uh, ever since i've done that it's benefited me as the government continues to print money and i think as more people understand that it becomes that uh, real lifeboat for people in struggling uh, economies, but also within developed and stable economies, as a check and balance on on the government. Let's talk about uh, about your wild ride and what you've learned from it. Um, how much money did you make and lose in the past five years, and how did you did you Google that? <laughs> I know enough uh, about you, Peter, to know your right. uh, shady your shady background. <laughs> well, so look, I mean, it's on my it's pinned as my Twitter. 
uh, on top of my Twitter. People can go read the story, my original story, uh, when I quit the advertising industry a few years back and took some time out and, and I had some money left over. And I, I think I started with about £32,000 I put into Bitcoin and all types of cryptocurrency. And in that year, that inflated up to, I managed to trade that up to about $1.2 million, um, which was wild uh, and uh, i was buying myself nice things and traveling the world and flying first class and then uh, in 2018 there was like the markets crash which i wasn't prepared for and i nearly i nearly lost the lot uh, and it was a really it was a really painful but good exercise in understanding money and uh, preserving capital uh, but since then i, I changed everything I, I stopped buying cryptocurrencies i stopped trading them and i focus on what i should do which is building a business which uh, historically but that's what i've done so i built this podcast business over the last few years and, and i continue to put money into bitcoin i'm not going to say how much i own uh but uh, i set myself up financially in a pretty stable position and, and also put my kids in a in a position where i can afford to send them to college and was the clawing back of money that you lost in crypto trading a, a lesson for that people can take something from if they're not in your unique situation like was the means by which you got rich the first the first time and then lost it different from the means by which you've become well if not rich then comfortable the second time i mean it's just a typical story of greed uh, i'd made one point whatever million and i remember i was um i was with my dad and kids were a place called center pass in the uk it's like a, a holiday place you go and my dad said to me he said don't you think you should take some out you could go out now and you could buy three or four houses and that's going to set you up uh, for the rest of your life. And I was like, yeah, but dad, what if this goes to 5 million? Um, and then the market topped out in January and, and completely crashed. And like I say, I lost most of it. And it really and sorry, was when just, was this January of what year? Uh, 2018. And, and yeah, I just right. got, I got, I got greedy, Josh. I, I, I followed what was, the, what was, uh, what was Bitcoin when you were a millionaire? What was the, the price in USD? Um, gosh, but I mean, back then it was, the it it, it it spiked at around twenty thousand dollars during that bull run. It's amazing, isn't it, that it's gone up to almost seventy in the interim? Well, I'll tell you, I actually at one point I had a hundred and eighty-six Bitcoin. I don't mind saying that now because I have nothing near that. But at the time, wow. if I, I mean, if I had that now, I, you know, I'd be in a, a much better position. But but at the same time, it it was quite stressful. It wasn't just. Uh, that I was making the money and doing the trading. I was actually spending all day, every day, looking at the charts, waking up in the middle of the night, checking mm. the charts. And it, just, it was no way to live. And it wasn't really a job. It was just this stupid thing I did all the time. And suddenly, I, by accident, after meeting this guy, Rich Roll, who's a podcaster in the US, uh, spending some time with him and just said, actually, I like your life. I went and did the podcast and I've spent my last five years building that and making films and just found something I really enjoyed doing. And it's... Yeah, most things. If you enjoy what you do, you will usually find a, a way to earn a, an income from it that gives you the yeah. life you want. I, yeah. you know, I, I say, Josh, the biggest lesson I, I learned is that, the, and it's just such a cliche, I'm so embarrassed to say this, but the money did not make me happy. The excite, It felt exciting at the time seeing the money going up, but was I happy? No, I wasn't. I, I was not enjoying my life. I wasn't in a good place in my life. And now I am. I, I really enjoy my job. I get a lot of benefits out of it. I get to travel the world. Uh, I get invited to do cool things and you know, I get to have a conversation like this with you. So It's uh, so funny, isn't it? I mean, the money doesn't buy happiness uh, adage is one of those things that is both intensely true and also intensely inaccessible until you've lived it first person. Yep. It's a bit like, you know, what other people think of you doesn't matter. 
like you can try to tell a 15 year old that what other people think of them doesn't matter but like no matter how many times you say the words it's never gonna make any sense and you can try to tell a 15 year old that like money doesn't buy you happiness but it doesn't make any sense and then once you've been rich and you've been poor and once you've been you know, uh, famous or unfamous or fated over and or, or despised, you ultimately realize that your grandparents were right about all this. Um, on the question of if just in case people are scratching their heads and wondering what 186 Bitcoin is that you've you previously had at the, at the sort of peak value of 65,000 US dollars, we're talking about 12 million US. So, but that would have required you to pick the top of the market so where do you which think I, uh, I, I have to i have to run soon which is a shame unfortunately yeah we uh i i stuffed up the uh the technical aspect of of this so for the listener we started speaking later than we'd expected to so i would have liked to talk for over an hour we can't because i have another obligation um but uh, peter and i are going to speak on his podcast so the follow-up of this conversation will be on on peter's podcast and you can hear it there that being said, where do you what is going on with crypto at the moment? Because throughout last year, when when Bitcoin went from sixty something thousand down to thirty something thousand, whenever that was, March or April of twenty twenty one, maybe is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I thought, all right, well, this is a moment. This is my moment to sort of start dabbling because uh, I, I don't know whether or not sixty thousand dollars was overvalued. But if it has been sixty thousand dollars, then I'm pretty sure that thirty thousand dollars is a reasonable price to to pay. So I bought some and started do, sort of doing my re- doing my research, as they say. And everyone in the crypto space was saying it's going to be a hundred grand by the end of the year. It's going to be a hundred grand by the end of the year. This is the year. This is the year. And I sort of thought okay well we'll see and sure enough it tanked it went all the way up and then it tanked uh, all the way up to 60 something and then quickly tanked and ended the year in the doldrums and now it's sort of just petering along uh, at less than i bought it for and much less than everybody uh than a lot of people bought it for and much much less than everybody said it was going to be worth what do you make of that well that that's what always tends to happen it's uh, these cycles of bitcoin um yeah, it's a tricky one. It's super volatile. Most people, they get in later than they should have. They get told for years. And the, when they finally get in, they get in at, at a price much higher than they originally heard about it. I mean, the first Bitcoin I ever bought was about $80 and I was using it on the Silk Road, uh, which you probably know what that was for. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I've spent a lot of money on the you Silk Road. You buying probably- textiles and, uh, and silks from uh, from China, right? Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, Bibles. And, yes. uh, but yeah, but but that and that money is, would have been worth millions now uh but what tends to happen is you know you come in and and, and you hear about it and you, th- and you finally jump in and it does this to a lot of people that the price tags you're like what the hell happened but i would just say to people is or, or to you is just be patient um st- don't think of bitcoin as a, a certain price you should buy i'm always buying it i buy it at sixty five thousand, i buy it thirty thousand. i'll buy it forty five thousand. i continually buy and, and, and accumulate bitcoin because all the bitcoin i buy is from money i don't need for the next two to five years it's money i don't need to spend uh, and because i'm under the the belief that we are repricing the world under a new standard and it will continue to grow and every four to five years you will gradually see the price go up and up but i think one of the most healthy things that happened this year is that a lot of people. I was just talking to Danny about this. A lot of people expected the price to go to one fifty to three hundred thousand because every previous cycle it's seen these massive 
ramp ups in the price. But the problem when it goes up massively in price, it then comes down usually 80%, which is really painful for some people. I think what we're, we're seeing is that this is a market that is a lot more mature. We have derivatives. Uh, we have a lot more buyers. We have institutions involved. So we're getting more liquidity. And as you get more liquidity and more users, the price will tend to stay, stabilize. And I just think that's the, the sign of Bitcoin maturing. And I hopefully I hope that we get to a point where we don't see massive rises in the price, but we also don't see massive falls in the price. For me, that's going to be a much more healthy position to be in. It's going to be a lot easier for people to buy and use Bitcoin. Uh, but I'm entirely confident confident on a long enough time frame, uh, Bitcoin will always go up in price because there are more people adopting it. So I would just say, Josh, if, if you're continuing to uh, uh, go down this Bitcoin rabbit hole and learn about it, don't ever think about buying at a single price. Just do what they say is dollar cost averaging, just buy a regular amount at the, uh, at the same time, you know, whether that's $1,000 a month or $100 a week, and and then just ignore it for years. Uh, it, I talk about this thing that the first your first four years in Bitcoin is your tourist service. You either survive it, and you don't. But if you, if you survive your first four years in Bitcoin, it gets really easy. I'm my my net. It's like having kids, Peter. It's like a, you yeah. Know, someone someone told me that having kids. I've got four year old uh, twins, and that you know some wow. some older mother told me before I had them. Uh, well, I didn't have them before we had them. That she was like, you know, just think of the, of this as a deployment to Afghanistan. You're going to be in the trenches for uh, for for a a few years and then you're going to come back covered in blood and sweat and uh, shell shock and then it'll be okay well your, your second kid's always the easiest my, my friend said to me i wish he'd done it. he said i'm gonna write this book it's called how to have your second kid like your first because once you have your second child you don't do all the panicking or worrying you don't go to the <laughs> store and buy all the little gadgets and things you, you, your second kid's born you usually got a, a set of baby grows ready for it and then yeah, you just got right. home to deal with it but yeah. bitcoin's like that that the first four years is hard and stressful because you see your net wealth jump up and drop and sometimes you end up negative but once you get through that first four years and you've been through a cycle and then you're in the green and you're comfortably in the green it actually becomes a lot easier buying bitcoin for me is really really easy now because i'm in the green i'm fully confident i understand how it works i've accepted that we're repricing the, the world we're, we're speculating on this future money and, and i'm part of that uh, but it is it is a tough verse tour of duty Mm. But Peter, I've got to go. But so, so in thirty okay. seconds or less, answer my last uh, question. When you say that you're confident that in the long run Bitcoin's uh, going to be a good investment, what percentage do you give that confidence? Out out of a hundred percent, how confident are you? Let's say that Bitcoin does not end up devaluing and turning out to have been one gigantic bubble. Well, I have 95% of my net wealth in Bitcoin, so I'm obviously very confident. Um, 100%? 30 seconds. Uh, not 100% because uh, there, are, there could be a coordinated global crackdown on Bitcoin from all the world governments, and that's something that can happen. But again, we're getting beyond that point. El Salvador's made it legal tender. Uh, there are various states in the US looking to make it legal tender, like the game theory is playing out at a state level. Uh, so I don't think that's happening. So uh, I'm highly confident. I'm 100% confident Bitcoin will still be here in a decade, in two decades. Uh, I would say I'm uh, 90, 95% sure it will be worth more in five years than it is now. Peter, terrific to talk to you. Can't wait to continue the conversation on your podcast. Yes, uh, thanks for your time. Yeah, I loved it. Uh, talk to you soon. 
Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Zepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.